Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the labyrinthian task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm almost certain we used that one for the Time Monster, but I'm not sure. I feel like we did at some point, yeah. We probably did. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a non labyrinthian three person discussion panel. Well, of course they are, because how can you be labyrinthian? Including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan, who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back a special guest, the host of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast and the co-host of the Trap One Podcast, Jason Miller. Hello, Jason. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me back on. Really excited to be here again tonight. And we're excited to have you. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this podcast, because I've appeared on your podcast since you started, but you haven't been on mine since you started it. This goes back to my blog, the old Doctor Who novels, DR Who novels at WordPress. And I had that blog on and off and going back to 2011, mostly about the Target books, but also reviews of the new TV episodes from the Peter Capaldi era whenever I enjoyed them, which was sometimes. So <laughs> after uh, Trump won the presidential election in 2016, I was left with a lot of anxieties and concerns and agitation. So the only thing that would calm me down was reading the Target books. So I started this insane project of going through the books in publication order and every 
every two or three days, I would put up a marathon-level blog post entry about what I read. And this lasted for about three months. And I made it through the first 15 and a half books in publication order, stalling out with the middle of Planet of the Spiders because the pace was so insane that it would take a <laughs> madman to keep it up. And I'm, I may be crazy, but I'm not that crazy. So <laughs> I was left with this <clears throat> really deep series of blog posts covering just about one-tenth of the target output and then nothing else after that. During the pandemic, I was making a lot of guest appearances on Trap One, which was run by my friend Mark out of Northern England. And I was on his show every three or four months or so, and we would cover some new bit of Doctor Who media merchandise, like a book or a vinyl release of a classic series episode soundtrack. And during the pandemic, I ended up guest hosting a couple of episodes, and that went really well. And then I started pitching some episodes and having on some friends of mine who had written books and so on. And eventually, he offered me a co-host position. So after the 200th episode of Trap One, Mark changed the format of the show. So now we have a panel of six or seven hosts, and anyone can pitch an episode, and we can have an ever-rotating series of panelists in any given week. I was enjoying being a rotating co-host on Trap One, and then I decided I wanted my own podcast, and I realized that I had, without putting in any effort, I had 16 weeks of podcasts right there, okay? All I had to do was take all these epic yeah. blog posts from 2017 and just read them out and just, you know, throw some musical cues in there. So I figured that would be the easiest project in the world until I ran out of blog posts after <laughs> halfway through Planet <laughs> of the Spiders, and then the thing just kept on building. So I started this about six or seven months ago. I've been doing a book a week, and I eventually realized that nobody wants to listen to just me with my scratchy Brooklyn-accented voice talking into a microphone reading out five-year-old posts. <laughs> so I started bringing in guests, typically friends of mine who would either put me in their books like Stacy Smith with the Outside In series or people who had had me on their podcast. So Mark from Trap One was a very early guest. Tony was one of the first people that I invited on. Now, I realize that I am somewhat covering ground that you guys have already <laughs> covered, but what I'm doing is I'm going through the books in publication order. So I'm examining the literary evolution, and once you get to the late 1970s, the de-evolution of the line, and I'll be following trends in who's writing the books, what happens when they bring in people from the 1960s who've never written a book before, like some of those Hartnell era stories. We'll get there. We'll be getting a bunch of new perspectives coming in as we cover the books from late 1976, early 1977. And of course, anybody from this show is more than welcome to be on mine. I always welcome new voices. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. We may indeed take you up on that, especially as we get into books that I want to discuss again or want to <laughs> destroy again, as people tell me that I keep doing on this show. Well, well again, thank you and welcome. Yeah. So if you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you keep them in an ever-shifting maze guarded by a weirdly slim bull monster. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I'm serious. Their bodies are gorgeous. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. 
We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's penultimate season with a discussion of what should have been the penultimate story of that season with Terrence Dick's novelization of The Horns of Nymon. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Horns of Daimon, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Anthony Reed, that aired from 122279 to 11280, published by Target Books in October 1980. As of this recording in May of 2022, this title is currently out of print, 111 pages. Now, as I said, this was meant to be the penultimate story. This is officially, however, the last story of season 17 to air. So it's the last time that the names of producer Graham Williams and script editor Douglas Adams would be seen in the credits for a televised Doctor Who story. As we'll see next time, this was never the intention. It was also the last script contributed to the series by former script editor Anthony Reed, and even that wasn't intentional. Both Williams and Adams had wanted all new writers for this season, but a series of unusable scripts proved to be too daunting, especially for Adams, who decided to leave at the end of the year as a result. Williams himself was also leaving because he was quite rightly fed up with Tom Baker, (laughs) and we'll talk about how that shakes out next time. Mm. Anthony Reed had previously mined Greek mythology, working as script editor with Bob Baker and Dave Martin on Underworld. (laughs) See what I did there? (laughs) Yeah, sorry, that was terrible. He wanted to do the same with his own script, which would revisit the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. Essentially, all of the names are reshuffles of the names of the original myth. So for Minotaur, read Naimon. For Theseus, read Seth. For Athens, read Aneth. For Knossos, read Skonos, and so on. And if that wasn't subtle enough for the kiddies at home, the end of the story bashes them in the head with a mallet by suggesting that the Doctor was present at the end of Theseus' adventure, which is not too far a stretch, since we already know he was at the Battle of Troy, so why the hell not? Williams was not pleased with the final scripts, as it turns out, but since he had nothing else, he figured he'd make up for it with the season finale story, which he didn't end up doing. The TV story features two notable guest stars, one famous and the other, at least for this story, infamous. Season was played by John Bailey, who had appeared about a decade previously on the show as Victoria Waterfield's ill-fated father in Evil of the Daleks. Soul Deed was played by Graham Croden. Croden had also been one of the actors asked to play the fourth Doctor before Tom Baker accepted the role. And it's an open question whether he would have played it the way he played Saldi. We can only hope he would not have done so. Croton's performance is considered by many to be the most over-the-top performance in the show's history, culminating in his death scene during which he started laughing, thinking they were doing a camera rehearsal rather than the actual taping. You will die for your interference! You fool! You are all doomed! Doomed! (laughs) Needless to say, he's the character that comes off much better on the page. Also noteworthy is that the the co-pilot visibly splits his pants during his death scene. So there's that. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a crap fest. 
The story was released in a DVD box set called Myths and Legends, along with the Time Monster and Underworld in 2010. Talk about serving a piece of crap between two slices of crap. To date, there has not been an audiobook of this story, though Anthony Reed did write a new script for Audio Go in 2013. But between that company folding and Reed dying in 2015, it's unlikely we'll ever get to hear it. And yes, as I've said in the past, this is the very first novelization I ever owned, which was sent to me as a premium for a donation to my local PBS station way back when. Amazingly, I still have the original copy. I have it right in front of me. And equally amazingly, it was that book that started the labyrinthian path to this podcast. Make of that what you will. <laughs> yes, this, that's what started it all. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jason, would you be willing to do the honors for us? Uh, Yes, let me find my Graham Croden voice. (laughs) All right. (laughs) In the great maze of the power complex dwells the dreaded Naiman, a fearsome monster with immense scientific powers. The Naiman has promised to restore the Skanan Empire to its former glory, but first it demands sacrifice. Youths and maidens from the peaceful planet Aneth. The TARDIS collides with the spaceship delivering the victims, and the captured Romana is condemned to be sacrificed to the Naiman. Aided by the faithful K9, the Doctor goes to the rescue. In the heart of the maze, he confronts the Naiman and uncovers a terrifying plot to enslave the galaxy. And scene. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you. So, Dalton. What was your first impression when I sent this to you? Even without reading it, I immediately thought about the legend of the the labyrinth and the minotaur. So it was interesting for me to realize that it was just a retread of that. The cover, the the Naimon reminds me of a creature that you would fight in Dark Souls. (laughs) (laughs) And the doctor's face is oddly elongated and um, <laughs> it just it, it's it's a weird representation of Tom Baker but from the last podcast I knew that it was not going to be one of your favorite books so I tried not to let that uh, color any any of my reading but um, <laughs> I didn't hate it but it's it was just kind of eh, middle of the road for me I need to be better about that I need to be better about not telegraphing because every once in a while I will change my mind on a book in the course of reading it. This was not one of those times. No, and I, I can form my own opinion even without that, though. And there have been times where you have you've hated something and I've liked it. And there have been times where you've liked something and I have hated it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I try not to let that get, get to me too much. Well, good. <laughs> okay, I'm glad to hear that. And Jason, actually, I need to ask you, when was the first time you encountered this story, and did you encounter it as the TV version or as the book version first? That is a really good question, and I'm pretty sure it was the TV version first. So I've told the story elsewhere, but I famously became a fan of the show because of Time Flight Episode 1, which (laughs) aired on my local PBS station on Long Island, New York, on, coincidentally, November the 23rd, 1984. And yes... There is a website that tells you which PBS stations aired which stories on which date. So that was how I was able to figure that out. Oh, I need that. So they... (laughs) Send me that. (laughs) I will. 
I think it's broad wcast. The word broadcast with dw in the middle dot com is my recollection. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll double check that out and send it to you after the show. But they were showing one episode a night at uh, 7 p.m. and I was, you know, I just turned 11 years old. And you know, it was Time Flight Part One. The next night, Time Flight Part Two, etc. And after they reached Caves of Androzani Four, the very end of January 1985, they cycled back around to. Tom Baker, because obviously January 1985, season 22, was only just beginnings. And of course, Tom Baker is, what, 40, 41 serials? It takes most of the calendar year to get through that, watching one story part a night. Horns of Nymon probably comes around in August 85. At this point, I'm nearly 12 years old. I am full on hooked on the show. I've already been to my first convention. At this point, I was already getting the novelizations one book a week as a salary for babysitting my kid sister after school. That's $3 a week. That's not very good uh, bargaining power by young Jason there, but (laughs) the books have certainly uh, outlasted any cash that I would have gotten. So Horns of Nymon comes around that I was mesmerized because I remember going into part four desperate to know if the character of Soldier was going to live or die because I was enamored of Graham Croden's performance. Now, yes, Ah. I realize this is a contrary take, but you got to remember that I'm a 12 year old (laughs) kid. I'd never seen acting like that before. And it just grabbed me in a really positive way. And if I had read the novelization first, I wouldn't have had that concern on my part that he might not make it out of the story alive so must have come to the tv story first and then probably bought the book as soon as i could afterwards because i had really really enjoyed it hmm okay yeah i had the same impression of it as a kid as a matter of fact you just jogged loose a memory of mine i just realized this is the first doctor who story i ever saw lala ward in and I remember the the circumstances of it because we would get it one episode per night every weeknight, but we would also get the omnibus stories on Sundays. Uh, the ones on the weeknights were in order, but the omnibus stories, they would show them from, you know, whatever they had in movie format available. Uh, that's how I first saw the new title sequence that we're about to get in a few weeks. It was the first time was not during the, the nightlies. It was on one of the Sundays, but Horns of Daimon was the story that I saw her in for the first time. And I was like, wait a minute. She just said that she's Romana. How is this possible? Because I hadn't seen her leave yet, and of course I never would. So, yeah, this story has a lot of memories, both good and bad. So where do we start with this? Let's talk about the positives of this book first and the story first, shall we? Well, as the guest, let me take privilege and start off. Yes, of course. I started collecting the books at 11 years old, and pretty soon, within a year, I had most of them. So... I had on my shelf, having arranged the books in story order, as any nerd should, (laughs) it was fascinating to me to wake up in the morning and gaze lovingly upon my shelves and notice the patterns formed by the colors of the spines. So season 12, I had mostly in pinnacle format, so I had a bunch of black covers in season 12 and 13. When you go from Pyramids of Mars up through Creature from the Pit, Every spine is white except for the Sunmakers, right? Mm -hmm. So in the middle of my shelf is this whole wall of white, with the exception of the Sunmakers in the middle. And that ends with Destiny of the Daleks. So then starting with the next three stories, the the creature from the Nightmare of Naimon, 
all of a sudden they go almost pastel. So the cover design is just <laughs> remarkable. So the spine for Creature from the Pit is this kind of rust red, and the spine for Nightmare of Eden is sort of an olive green. And I'm going to turn on the camera here, because if Dalton only has the PDF, he is selling himself short. The cover of Nymon, it is a almost bluish purple. It is a unique color mm. in the yeah, target like an line. Indigo. And it is, I could just look at the cover of the book and never even open the text. And I am just, uh, this cover just grabs the eye. It is soothing. It is a great color. And yeah, you have to admire Tom Baker's curly hair, right? His <laughs> hair is so wide that the cover of the book can't even capture it all it literally cuts off <laughs> over what would be his ear it can't be contained <laughs> exactly <laughs> of all the tom baker illustrations on the cover this is the one that best captures his hair and it doesn't even get all of it because there's just so darn much of it this is one of the best books without even turning to page one this is just an amazing <laughs> cover that i can get lost in uh, thank you for coming to my ted talk <laughs> Well, I think I think it's telling that we're talking about the positives. We're we're going for the aesthetics first because you're right. It's an attractive book to look at. <laughs> I know it caused lots of laughs on my school bus when I showed it to everybody and they saw Terrence Dick's last name because, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. We, even we've gotten sick of Dick's jokes on this show, so that tells you something. We don't even try anymore. Yeah, precisely, because it's all been done. But as far as the writing, and as far as the story, well, I, I guess we really need to tackle whether or not it's a good story on its own to begin with, just ignoring what we know about the performances on screen, because in Dalton's case, you can ignore the performances on screen. Is it a good story? Uh, it's pretty forgettable, and... It feels like a, a retread of things we've had before mm -hmm. for me. In what sense? Well, not, not even talking about just the the reskin of the, the Legend of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. The idea of a race of aliens trying to take over another planet for resources or food or just conquest. We've seen it any number of times i feel like even the idea of them fooling the Ganons, mm -hmm. lying to them and saying hey we'll help you get technology we'll help you become this great race of people that you once were if you help us and not even help us they think that there's just the one naimon not mm -hmm. not even realizing that that they're being duped right I just, I feel like we've seen it before and we've seen it done better. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, at the Legend of Theseus, for one thing, it's definitely been done better there. But you mean in terms of uh, the Doctor Who universe? Yeah. 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 It's not exactly covering up its mythological roots, is it? I mean, Underworld, you can at least ignore the mythological roots until they're brought to the fore at the very end of the story. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, they're there from the start. All you have to do is do some reshuffling of letters and you're like, oh, Theseus, oh, the Minotaur, oh, oh, this again. But yeah, as far as that and as far as science fiction stories go, Jason, what do you think? As Just as a story, if, if you were coming to this book and you didn't know the televised story, what would you think of the story? 
That's a really good question, isn't it? Because the TV series, uh, you know, especially for you and me, it is inescapably linked with the particular, very happy, over-the-top, very comical style of story. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at the prologue then, because Terrence takes that comical TV presentation and he tosses it out the window because yep. the prologue is epic. Next to the crumbling <laughs> yes. palace of the emperor on the edge of the sprawling ruins that were the capital of Skanas, there rose the power complex. That's a great scene setter. And then he talks about very philosophically how empires uh, you know, rise and fall. And, and then, of course, the last sentence of the prologue really is you're hooking to the rest of the story. The seventh sacrifice failed to arrive on time. So this is a serious epic story. And again, there are some funny lines and it's pretty lighthearted in tone. And then at the very end, Terence goes one step further from TV and actually name checks uh, the Greek legends. He name checks the Seas in the book. He name checks the Minotaur in the book, which mm-hmm. didn't happen on television. If right. it were twice the length, it could be a very dark epic. And it's not. It's you know barely 100 pages, and it's sort of light in tone. But I think it's much more serious and gripping than the TV story. And I love the TV story. Don't get me wrong. I have a very soft spot for it. Mm-hmm. But the book is portraying it in a different light. What might have been had this been done, you know, under Christopher Bidmead or if Tom Baker had taken it a little more seriously or if they had replaced Graham Croden with a much more dramatic actor like a James Bree type. Mm. I agree because you're right. Terrence Sticks probably at this point has not been watching tapes of these stories as he's novelizing them. He's just getting the shooting scripts, and even the shooting scripts will not have some of the performance that we get there. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to play it straight. He's going to look at what these scripts are giving him and try to do the most serious job that he can with them. So it does come across on the page, and I remember thinking this when I got it as a kid. This is not quite the story that I saw on television, especially, and I'm glad you brought up Graham Croden, with Saldid, who's a very different character on the page. Extremely different character on the page. Especially since we do get in that prologue that Saldid was just some lowly technician that they kind of shoved out there to have first contact with the Naimon, and so he fell over backward into this position of power, which is completely unearned. And if there's any bluster on his part, it's because he's overcompensating. You get overcompensation on screen, all right, but it's not for lack of technical expertise that he's overcompensating. (laughs) It is definitely trying to match Tom Baker's energy. Hmm. And it's so different. What else can we say about this that's positive or negative? Just thinking about kind of our usual suspects, I thought that Romana came off pretty strong in this one. She, in ways, kind of adopted a doctor role. Mm-hmm. Um, even getting, you know, she she has her own sonic screwdriver that yes. she's created that the doctor tries to steal because it's better. <laughs> but even seeing her get taken away to Krinoth, just seeing her be separated from the doctor and having to problem solve on her own without him and seeing her basically come into her own in the way that we've seen her in 
some of the earlier Romana stories, but some of the ones in the middle, she's just kind of been relegated to damsel in distress, which, as we know, has annoyed me. But um, Mm -hmm. but, but seeing Romana be a stronger character in this one, I thought was really handled well. Yeah. And she comes off a lot better than she did in the last story, both on the screen and the page. Yeah. Because she wasn't very competent in that particular one, whereas this one, you're right, she she is the doctor for, and Jason, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but her bit on Krinoff, I think, goes on for a full half episode. It felt like it went on for a while. It does. I mean, part of that is you're recording in a small studio, so if you're going to redress the Skana set to represent Krinoff at the end of its reign, you have to spend a lot of time in there to justify the cost. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you've got a, you know, John Bailey's a fairly big name guest star. He was he was a good guy in Evil of the Daleks, and he was the the bad guy in the Sensorites. So oh yeah, that's right. Certainly a pretty big name guest star. You've got to give him more than a forty five second walk on, and he gives such gravitas on TV as opposed to what Graham Croden is doing. That you really want to spend as much time with him as you can, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I feel like that he basically the type of character that Saldid is as well. He was the person that was chosen as the liaison for the Naimon. So he mm-hmm. has he has this weight to him. Yeah, it's the tragic side of what could happen to Saldid if everything comes to pass. The the great journey of life as they call it mm-hmm. actually happens and they get to Skanos. That's going to happen to him if he's lucky. They may, if he's even luckier, they'll kill him off even faster. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I wanted to address that because that's something that Terrence Dix adds to the book that I do not remember being in the screen version. The reason that Season is still alive is because the Naimon have specifically kept him alive while they've killed everybody else so that he can see exactly the doom that he has brought down on his planet. So they're saving him for last. And it's like, good God, <laughs> that that is awful. The Naimon themselves are pretty bad on screen, but my God, they're just vicious, cruel creatures in this particular telling. And that's some of the darkening that Dix is doing with that whole sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the line is on page 89, and it's really pretty chilling. I am dying, said Sesam simply. My time is almost up. Dix writes, the Naimon left me just enough energy to cling to life and see my planet die. That's pretty incredible. And I don't, I don't think that line was on television at all. So that means he's going in and putting it there. Exactly. And it's good even at this late stage. And I call it late stage because we have gone through so many dicks of late. Oh, God. See, the jokes are still there, folks. You just have to wait for them. But we've gone through so many of Dix's books in the last run. It's just been endless. It's good even in this late stage to see him still caring enough to rehabilitate what even the producer thought was a weak script Mm -hmm. into something that could actually be strong and memorable, even though it doesn't end up being all that memorable and at times isn't even all that strong. What else? What else do we think is particularly strong or weak about this? I had issue with all of the names Mm. which is something we've had in the past where they basically uh, introduce so many characters kind of rapid fire and Mm. they all have overall all the secondary characters have s names (laughs) 
So they get really confusing, especially we get General Sato at the beginning who immediately dies. We have Soldi, we have Captain Sorak, we have Sekoth, we have Sardor, we have Seth, we have Sizem. <laughs> so just all of these S names, it was really hard for me as someone who hadn't seen the televised story to kind of keep up with them and at times i had to kind of go back and make sure i was remembering who each of these people were there was some confusion or there were some scenes where there were multiple of those characters together and that's terrence being creative because sato is not a character on tv and then the pilot and co-pilot don't have names on television i think it's terrence who decides that everybody on this planet must start their name with a letter s which is another (laughs) neat character touch yeah He's been watching some episode of Star Trek set on Vulcan. <laughs> he wants everybody <laughs> to have names that start with us. But you're right. The uh, the co-pilot is not named at all mm. in the story, which is, if you think about it, <laughs> what other story has a character with that many lines and appearing in as many episodes as he does who doesn't even get a name? <laughs> That shows you a weakness in the writing of the script, Mm. especially from a former script editor. It's just like, yeah, this shows you why it is that maybe Graham Williams wasn't all that happy with the script to begin with. Yeah. It does have that unfinished quality to it. But yeah, I I get you, Dalton. The the, the names in this are kind of difficult to wrap your head around. Yeah, and and, and at, at some point, I feel like my brain just started inserting titles for them like captain or scientist or for sardor i was it was basically like navigator or second in command co-pilot co-pilot yeah some just something to differentiate who they are and what their role is as opposed to a name that is just going to confuse me yeah and again i I agree with jason that is taren six coming in and filling in those gaps and trying to flesh out these people by at least giving them a name yeah i like the idea that they are seen more as an important character you know i think i think that's a good thing yeah something else that he does sorak who is basically the adjutant to Saldid gets this gigantically huge internal life in the book as compared to his on-screen version where essentially that actor is just there to be a foil for Graham Croden and his performance is so forgettable that I've been trying to think of the actor's name and I keep having to look it up on IMDb because it really is a damp squib of a performance. But the hat, I would like a hat like that. He is best characterized (laughs) by his hat and it is a remarkable hat so let's give credit where credit is due that's true but that's the only interesting thing about him that's the sad part whereas in the book at least he is cunning and manipulative and he knows that saldid is too big for his britches and he is just biding his time and sure enough by the end of the story he ends up running skanas on screen you don't get any of that there's three great things about Terrence Dix's writing. This is the end of an era. Season 17 is the last season where Terrence writes at least half the books. So starting mm. season 18, which is coming up for you with Leisure Hive, at this point, Terrence is only going forward to be an occasional voice. 
He'll do two books for sorry, three books per season, 18, one of which is his own story. And then after that, there's going to be less and less and less of him. Mm. So this is the last time that Terrence is king of the range, right? And also volume wise, this book comes out at the end of 1980. So it comes out a year after the TV story. In 1980, Terrence Dix writes 10 books in a year. That is more than, you know, the Brontes wrote in their entire lifetime. And Terrence is doing this in 12 months, right? So it's nine novelizations, and then it's the junior adaptation of Brain of Morbius, which I assume he edited himself. And as a side note, when I met Terrence Dix the one time at a convention in 2014, I told him, dude, I have read more of your books than I have Charles Dickens. And he blanched. He's like, that's that's not good. (laughs) The guy was prolific. Oh, yeah. So, I, I'm sure he would react to that way. <laughs> but this, 1980, it's the end of him writing 10 books a year. And going in story order, this is the last time that Terrence is the main writer for the range. Going forward, it's now going to be primarily original authors novelizing their own scripts. Let's talk about the three things that make him great. And the Horns of Nymon book has all of them. Number mm-hmm. one, you have flawless prose. This guy does not do a run-on sentence. He has rich vocabulary, but he rarely uses words that are longer than three syllables. He is the perfect author to read out loud, and I was doing a lot of that to myself when I was 12 years old, reading out these Mm -hmm. Terrence books, sitting at home alone, and kind of acting out the stories. Secondly, Terrence always inserts his own thought processes into the story. You always know if he likes a story or if he hates a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tony knows what I mean, but there's an infamous season 18 episode coming up in a couple of books that Terrence novelizes, and he just throws deadly shade at the story every twist and turn. You can tell that he hates it. Oh, yes. With Naiman, he likes the story, and he makes it obvious in the prologue where he literally compares Skanos to the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. You don't break out a Roman Empire comparison unless you like the material you're working with, okay? True. And the last thing that's great about Terrence is this is the guy who fixes plot holes. If <laughs> yes. you're going to have Soul Deed as your main character, he has to have a Holmesian double act. You can't just have Soul Deed by himself dominating this damp squib of an actor in a remarkable hat. You have to have a guy <laughs> who is just as interesting as him. You know, to, to quote the lyricist Stephen Schwartz, if you're going to have a Jesus, you have to have a Judas too. Mm-hmm. So as interesting as Soul Deed is, and Terrence makes him totally pathetic, Sorak is always maneuvering. Uh, let, let's compare the end of the story. Romana on TV asks, is Skanos going to be any better with Sorak in charge? And Terrence says, oh, not much better, nasty race of people. That's fine. In the book, Terrence adds on page 108-109, he adds a two-paragraph prologue talking about everything that the doctor does after the power complex blows up, but before he takes off. None of that's on TV. The doctor takes Sorak aside, gives him a lesson in leadership, and Terrence rewrites the line. What do you think Skanos will be like with Sorak in charge? Oh, not too bad. I hope. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Maybe they'll learn better ways. So Terrence fixes it. And this is, you don't even realize that he's doing it because he does it in 100 words or less. Mm-hmm. But he applies this remarkable fix to the back half of the story. So now you've got a headcanon choice. What do I like better? Do I like the ending on TV where Sorak is just Soldi 2.0? Or do I like the book better where Sorak is actually a conniving, smart leader who's going to do a better job on this planet? My mm-hmm. vote is with Terrence. I think this is the better version of the story. Yeah, yeah. I agree. <clears throat> yeah, I agree because I can never remember Michael Osborne 
<laughs> That's the name of the actor. Of course, of course. I can never remember him. I can never remember him. And it surprises me that he was ever in The Man with the Golden Gun, though he was just a naval officer in that. But you're right. He is a three-dimensional character, or as three-dimensional as a character in a Doctor Who novelization can get when they're not all that three-dimensional on the script page, which is true. I think Anthony Reid never intended that character to be any more than just a foil because you need Saldi to have somebody to talk to. Mm. But he's much more than that on the page. I'm just glad that it didn't devolve into the mutiny story that we always get, too. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that it basically allowed Soldi to have his whole arc, and then at the very end, we see Sorak in the position of power that we're already set up to believe that he's going to achieve. But instead of Mm -hmm. it being about their power struggle... It's really just about Soldi's rise and fall. Exactly. Which is really what it should be. It shouldn't be this, you know, Clash of the Titans that we get on screen. So, yeah. And, folks, this is why you should be listening to Jason Miller's podcast, because Mm. I can't remember the last time one of us actually trotted out a page number (laughs) in these discussions. (laughs) We've given up close reading of the books by this point. (laughs) Hopefully we'll get back to that, but that's definitely appreciated. (laughs) Now, can we talk about the things that still don't work? Because there are some things that still do not work. At least I think so. (laughs) I think the whole plan of trying to evacuate a huge number of the Naimon uh, from Kronoth is ludicrous. (laughs) Yes. In fact, that's one plot hole he doesn't manage to close. It's kind of still there. Because we're told that the only reason that that, this pod that they're sending through what is described as a black hole, but what has to be a wormhole. Mm -hmm. And late 70s, early 80s, those two were interchangeable. So whenever you heard about a black hole, especially in the Disney movie, The Black Hole, it was a gateway to another universe, not something that would crush you to a singularity. But this thing can only have three people in it at a time. And we're told the whole reason that they're doing this is so they can set up more across the planet so that they can bring everybody over. But as soon as Romana gets to Krinoth, they're worried because Krinoth is about to blow up. And they say, oh, well, the hell with the rest of the Naimhan. We're just going to get ourselves out of here. I think that's his way of closing that plot hole. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what it comes down to, Dalton, because on screen they don't say anything like that. But here on the page, at least, you have these diamonds saying, you know, fuck the rest of them. <laughs> Let's just get out of here. This planet's about to explode. There are enough of us here that we can reproduce or whatever, because they never get into Naimon biology. And thank God for that. Yes. Yeah, it wouldn't make any sense if there are millions of them for them to be coming across three at a time. It simply would not yeah it, it it's a bit of a problem <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and also the doctor saying that they're coming from another universe another galaxy sure another universe uh, i don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> douglas adams you know everyone remembers him as having the funny season but douglas adams actually wanted to make doctor who more scientific because he was he had a very deep interest in hard science. He is friends with Richard Dawkins. On the DVD, there's uh, on the on the text commentary, Douglas Adams actually writes 
on the script, let's pretend we know what a black hole is, please. And he wasn't <laughs> able to fix the story enough to turn the black hole into a wormhole. But he was aware this story was scientifically impossible. And how does draining the energy from a planet cause it to explode? It's this weird trope in Doctor Who where planets explode for no reason. Mm-hmm. And I say this as I'm currently watching the Galaxy 4 animation. Planets <laughs> just don't explode like that. And... Terence doesn't even try to fix that. He just takes it as red. Oh, yeah, the planet's going to explode because we've taken all the energy out of it. Hello? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's it, In fact, it almost gets that right because every time they talk about draining the energy from something, they talk about it leaving them as a dry husk. But that wouldn't cause a planet to explode. If anything, it would just probably cause it to implode, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And then calling the rock that you put in the spires of the staff to shoot the Nymon Jasonite. I mean, no What's offense, wrong with Jason. Jason? But... What's wrong with putting the word Jason in your script? Okay, there are two stories in Doctor Who that have the word Jason in them. Underworld and this one. So when I was a kid, that's all I wanted out of life. Doctor Who is saying my name. Okay, great. Thank you. There's nothing wrong with the name. But it is, you have to admit, it's very on the nose in a way that Underworld was not. With this whole shifting of the consonants, thinking nobody's going to notice, trying to come up with this Seth guy who is definitely not Theseus. Another damp squib on screen, as a matter of fact. He gets a better plot arc in the book than he does on screen. Yeah, (sighs) Jason Knight's just about as lazy as Eridus and Marinus. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that ending, if that's a nuclear explosion taking the power complex out, how are they all alive at the end? I know Dix actually does put some lines in there saying, well, this is how they escaped and all, but it's still like, wait a minute, how is that area just not irradiated for the rest of time? Yeah, it's it's a bit off. All of the walls moved and closed the passages up, so none of... I, I don't know. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. 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 <laughs> what, what else? What else can we... Uh say there's two weak points in the characterization so terence is probably not a big fan of k9 which is Mm -hmm. unfortunate because i am Mm -hmm. and when i was at forbidden planet in london in 2018 i bought a little talking k9 toy you push the computer on his back and he goes affirmative master and i have that on my desk at work and i play that multiple times a day because i need k9 giving me daily affirmation okay (laughs) yes but in the book terence describes k9 as quote the doctor's valued if sometimes irritating companion that, that's mm-hmm. funny. That's Terrence kicking the poor little tin doggy, but no, K9 is never irritating. And even worse, you know, you've got Tika on television, and, you know, her one purpose in life is to be annoying. <laughs> in the book, Seth tells her to shut up, which is just not cool. I don't care what year this was written. That was never cool. And causes her to cry, which she doesn't do on screen either. Oh, God. I will say, though, the, the maze. And the shimmering red barrier and all of those little tweaks of what things look like always look ten times better in a Terrence Dix novelization than they do on screen because, oh, that barrier is just an embarrassment. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's essentially just a green screen effect. It's green screen curtaining, and they just shove people through it. 
and they disappear as they go through it, but you can tell it's green screen curtaining, essentially. Hmm. But it's not on the page, so we don't have to worry about it. Right. I enjoyed Soldied calling Ramana a meddling hussy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the insults in this are wonderful. Weakling scum, meddling hussy, despicable worm. Yeah. (laughs) Die, you meddling fool, is uh, one of Graham Crowe's deliveries on television. And the epitome of it all being his delivery of the line, My dreams of conquest! He actually says it like that. Oh my god. (laughs) While gripping the sides of his face. (laughs) Trying to pull his face off, that's right. (laughs) Yes, and to her credit, Lala Ward has to act across from that. And she does not give in to it. She's like, okay, old man, you're going to play this over the top. I'm going to play this with every bit of righteous indignation that my character would be gathering at this point. Yeah. And she's excellent. Yeah, because Romano would would never give in to that fuller. <laughs> no, definitely not. And my God, I have to say it's one of the best Romana outfits ever because she's wearing basically a uh, fox hunter's outfit, mm. but it's in red because of bulls naturally yeah she looks amazing she's especially in that episode where she's all alone it's like why can't we have a romana spinoff series and eventually we get one but it's not going to be on television unfortunately (sighs) so yeah anything else we would like to say about this you can tell which comic strips terence was reading as he was sitting down to type this novelization (laughs) I know you saw this, Tony. I'll even give you the page side, page 19, for those of you oh, keeping school yes, at home. Oh, yes, I got it. It's it, a dark and stormy day on Skonos. It was a dark and stormy day, yeah. Somebody was reading a lot of Charles M. Scholes that week. Yeah, I expect the next lines to be suddenly a shot rang out, the maid screamed. Yeah, it's a dark and stormy day on Skonos. Good God. <laughs> I did enjoy K-9 asking to be taken off the table (laughs) since his abilities did not include jumping he had particular dislike of any kind of heights kindly remove me from this raised surface that would be dicks kicking the tin dog again yeah (laughs) but i I love that somehow in that position of vulnerability he still is able to emit some power over sorak Mm -hmm. and and gets him to take him down (laughs) exactly (laughs) you're stuck what are you gonna do so right and that's only if you're imagining him with the john leeson voice because to be honest i've never been a fan i've already said this before the david Brierly voice and i forgot to mention that this is the last time that you will hear david Brierly's k9 Hmm. you do get his voice in the recreation Jason, remind me, is that true of Shada? I'm going to bring this up when I do Shada in a few weeks, but Briar Lee does his voice in the VHS version. He does it in the version we just got because they had his recorded dialogue, but it was John Leeson, I think, who did the BBCI version. Right, I think David Briarly had already passed away by the time they brought uh, Paul McGann in to do his version of Shada. So that's what it was. It makes sense. John Leeson, you know, still very much alive and coming to all the conventions and loves being part of the show. He even did a canine audio with the river song of all things. So yeah, you want to use John Leeson whenever you can. Yeah. 
Absolutely. We adore John Leeson. It's not that we dislike David Brierley, because David Brierley actually is a very fine actor. In fact, part of the reason why he left the role, and I forgot to mention this, I was going to bring it up for Shada, is that he asked for a guarantee to have an on-screen role in the coming season, and they turned him down flat. Hmm. And he said, well, in that case, get somebody else to voice this damn tin dog because I'm not going to do it anymore. And luckily, John Leeson was willing to come back for the next season. But John Leeson got an on-screen role during the Key to Time season, so you wonder why they wouldn't have <laughs> thrown him a bone, as it were. Oh, Tony, Tony. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. It. You're you a better person it. than that, Tony. <laughs> Am I? Am I really? Am I really a better person than that? Because I don't think so. I live in this skin. I know what I am. I think for the most part, this is Terrence taking some lemons and making lemonade out of them. Again, Mm -hmm. I am very fond of the TV story. Possibly not for all the reasons the production team intended, but it is comfort viewing for me. And when I was 11, I loved Graham Crowden's performance. I will not say a bad word about him. But for the most part, Terrence does take this little you know, pile of chicken feathers on TV and turns it into chicken soup because there's some great lines in the novelization. He's rethought them things. He has that epic prologue. So, again, Terrence will do much better books, but for what it is, this is a pretty effective bit of uh, salvage. Mm-hmm. I agree. I actually adore the ending of the book more than I love the ending of the TV show because the TV show, you get that joke at Romana's expense, even though Lala Ward turns it around and it doesn't make it look like it's insulting. But at least the book ties it back into the mythological underpinnings of the story. If you can call it anything that close to the surface underpinnings, because good God. So yeah. One other thing that I thought was uh, acute, cute is a, a good word for this. Um, mm-hmm. When the doctor was going through the maze and he pulls out the star stickers and is trying to use them to find his way, it, some, <laughs> something so childlike and innocent about that. It's like, oh, that, that's yeah. smart, doctor. <laughs> You have to wonder where he came by those. You wonder if he's held those in his pocket ever since meeting Barbara Wright and she used to give them to her students or something back in the 60s. Yeah, but yeah, totally something that is in character for this version of the Doctor without being so over the top and kooky. Yeah, he's not suddenly pulling a cup of tea out of his pocket and saying, where did I get the tea? Live with it like the the 12 Doctors going to do (laughs) (laughs) Not that level of kookiness yet. Yeah. And who knows what sort of kookiness we'll end up getting now that we have Shudigatwa as the 14th Doctor. Yes, so congratulations, Shudi. We're looking forward to seeing what the 14th Doctor is like. Mm -hmm. Could be a little crazier Doctor than we're used to, but I'm fine with that. I like to be a bit of crazy. Yes. Okay, obviously, or else I wouldn't be doing this podcast. (laughs) All right, so... Let's go to Goodreads, shall we? As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.20 which is slightly lower than the last one. 
which is surprising. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davis gives it three stars and says another story like the previous one that turns out on rewatching and rereading not to be quite as bad as I'd remembered. On screen, there is again a well-designed but poorly executed monster, and again, some terrible overacting by one of the main cast, in this case Graham Croton as Saldid, along with a prologue giving us a background to the arrival of the Nymon and Saldid's meeting them, the book improves the story by leaving out many of the jokes, which, while not being quite as bad as I expected, were nevertheless not nearly as good as Baker and Croton thought they were. Well, that's true. Also in our Goodreads group, Damon gives it three stars and says, One of my earliest Doctor Who memories is catching this on TV when I was about five. Scared me silly. Now I can see it for what it is. One of the poorer books, but still a low three. Couldn't help but hear Salty's voice in my head while reading it. Praise be to Nymon. <laughs> and finally, Leo H gives it three stars and says probably a low three stars nearly a two as opposed to the nearly four i've rated some previously an enjoyable and short adaptation of one of the most critically maligned doctor who stories ever but one i happen to quite enjoy so see jason you're not the only one <laughs> dix adds a few little touches to the story as broadcast on tv a quick prologue detailing the nyman's arrival on skonos suggesting some political machinations between Sardor, the head of the guards, not Sardor, it's um, Sorak, and Saldi, the scientist head priest of Skanos. The most interesting of these additions is the subtle implication that Saldi, far from being the expert head scientist he presents himself as, was in fact a lowly assistant with little scientific knowledge before the Daimon arrived, and he was chosen as their priest oracle purely by virtue of being the first person they saw rather than chosen because of any leadership qualities. This adds a new dimension to Saldi's over-the-top rage-filled behavior throughout the story. He knows he's a fraud and is overcompensating. Lovely. This is all to skirt around the fact that this isn't an outstanding story. The plot is rather thin, and the villains are incredibly one-dimensional. The fact that the Doctor takes something of a backseat, allowing Romana to slip into the Doctor role in the story is fun, but there's not much else really going on. A fun diversion with a few nice touches added by Dix, but nothing more. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I think this week I'm actually going to agree with the other reviews and give this one a three. Hearing you guys talk about the way that this was handled on screen and what Terrence Dix has done with it, yeah, it, it doesn't shine the way that some of the other stories have, but I think that Terrence Dix did a good job reeling it in and making it concise and straightforward as he could. Again, you know, I get some good comedic moments from the Doctor, and I, like I said earlier, I really enjoyed Romana in this book, so I would give it a three. Okay, and Jason, out of five stars, how many would you give this? I am going to give this a 4.25, and I will tell you why. Obviously, you reserve a five for the classics. This is not one of them. 4.5 translates into a 9 of 10. That also goes for classics. But, like I said, Terrence applies some very fundamental fixes to the TV episodes. And there are versions of this that I prefer as my headcanon, what actually happened, like, for example, with Sorak. Number two, even though it's short, Terence doesn't miss a sentence. He never misses an opportunity to put in some witty or caustic observation. So there's always something entertaining going on on the page, 
even if watching the TV story can at times feel like, oh my God, how much more are these actors going to give in terms of crazy line readings? And then lastly, it's a Terrence Dix book, so there's no run-on sentences. Apart from the shut-up business with Tika, there's really no bad or regretful prose. It's short. Read this thing in about an hour or two. Always puts me in a good mood. So it's not rising to the level of a four and a half or a five out of five. But just for the entertainment value I've gotten out of this book over the years, I think 4.25 is a pretty fair score. If Terrence doesn't like a story or if the novelization is dull, and we're coming up on some of these Eric Sayward era season 1920 stories that Terrence can't make heads or tails of, you'll have some much lower scores out of me. But for this book, he likes the story, he saves the story. I think 4.25 is a pretty fair score. And as for me, I'd have to give it a 3.25. I am giving it that higher, slightly higher score for the same reasons that Jason is giving it such a high score, because this book does mean a lot to me, being my first Doctor Who novelization. I probably did read it within an hour and then reread it and then read it again. So this is probably one of the ones that I read the most of any of my books until I ended up getting Doctor Who and the Cybermen by Jerry Davis, which was definitely my second book. Talk about going from one extreme to another. It is such an improvement on the TV story that it should get a higher score. It is an improvement on a TV story that doesn't have that much to offer to begin with, though, which is why that's keeping that score almost artificially low. It's not Terrence Dix's fault, because at this point, bless him, Terrence Dix was just coming off of a long run of book after book after book after book and was probably sick and tired of it and has said in interviews he just wanted the paycheck at one point but is still putting in the work necessary to make something that is bland on the screen spark a little bit more on the page. And that's the important thing. So, 3.25. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be looking at the fan novelization of Shada, and only the fan novelization of Shada, for reasons I will get into next time. Jason, where can we find your two podcasts? My solo project, Doctor Who Literature, is Anchor, which is a division of Spotify, and it's also on Google Podcasts. I also post each episode on my Twitter, which is at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels on the Twitter. Right now, I'm doing new episodes every Sunday. Probably the same day this episode is released, I'll be dropping episode 26, which is Doctor Who and the Planet of the Daleks. All right. And in the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you again for joining us, Jason. It was great having you on the podcast. Yeah, thank again. you. Oh, love being here. Can't wait to come back, even if it's for a uh, less than stellar book like Ark of Infinity. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Good night.
That's very odd. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.